Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Thanks for joining us today. Um, As always, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We would love for you to be a regular listener or viewer if you want to catch us on YouTube of this podcast. Uh, It's officially the holiday season as far as I'm concerned. Thanksgiving is next week. We're recording this a week earlier, but Basically, when this airs, Thanksgiving will be in a week. It's a little early this year. Uh, And in honor of Thanksgiving, if you have not yet, you should really write a thank you note to your school counselors for their help. Um, A handwritten card, always a great thing. But even just a shout out as you're passing their office in the hall would be, uh, I'm quite certain, welcomed based on everything I see on Facebook and how much they appreciate it when their students say thank you. So Um, We have a great show as always for you guys today. We're going to be answering your questions. Um, But before we get to that, I'm really excited to uh, welcome back Ben Baum, who is Vice President of Enrollment at St. John's College. He was on the show uh, a few months ago, and he's back. And he's going to be sharing more about their new alternative application process. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Absolutely. We love having repeat guests. That means it's a good experience and uh, not afraid to come back. And that's always good. Um, Really excited because St. John's is doing something incredibly unique this year um, in your new discussion-based evaluation, uh, which is an alternative application. But before we dig into that, can you give us a quick overview of St. John's? Because it is a pretty unique institution. Yeah, St. John's is, I think, one of the most distinctive institutions in the country. We are a small liberal arts college that actually is the third oldest of all the colleges in the United States. We were founded in 1696. There's a lot of history here. And yet St. John's has an identity that really goes back to a change we made in our curriculum in the 1930s. Um, St. John's adopted at that time what we call our great books curriculum. So every student at St. John's is doing the same program together. There's one degree. It's the Bachelor of Arts in Liberal Arts. Students are reading roughly 200 great books. And the books go back to the ancient Greek world with Homer and Plato. And then the students read their way from the ancient world into the modern world by their senior year. And the books are interdisciplinary. And so it's not just great literature or great philosophy. It's great books in law and politics, in the sciences, in mathematics, in music. And uh, instead of reading any textbooks at all, what our students are doing are reading these original authors in all of these fields and then coming to class. And every class at St. John's will be a discussion of 20 students or fewer really um, getting into the ideas that these authors have been talking about for some some cases, thousands of years. Right. I mean, it's so, it's just really cool. As someone who is an English major and really likes to read, I can very much appreciate this. I can also appreciate that it's a pretty unique experience and is not going to be for every student, but for the right student, what an amazing opportunity. So um, thank you for that overview. If anyone is interested, if you go into the College Coach blog and you search for either Ben Baum or you search for St. John's, you will pop up um, a link to the podcast we did 
like I said, it was probably earlier this year, might have even been late last year, where we really dug into St. John's and what it's all about. And um, so if people would like to learn more, they should access that previous podcast. But Today, we're talking about something different. Um, so there are, this year, for the first time, there are two ways to apply to St. John. So talk to me about the more traditional way. Sure. So we've, um, for a long time, uh, asked students to complete a pretty typical application form in which they share with us all their their, their personal details about their lives. Um, we've used the common application, which is what many common, what many colleges use across the country. We also give students the option of the coalition application. We have our, our own homegrown one, but they're all effectively asking the same list of questions. Right. And, um, and we've often talked about what we do distinctively in our traditional application process as being focused around an essay that we ask students to write. So in addition to knowing who they are, to reading recommendations, to seeing their transcripts, uh, we would read an essay about a book that the student considers to be great and how it's influenced them or their thinking in some way. And pretty unusually, actually, at St. John's, we don't have a word limit on our essay. We have a word minimum. And so we expect students to write as much as they need to write in order to express themselves and to share their ideas with us. And in our process, that essay has historically been the thing that matters most. We're not looking for um, a student um, who could be a fit at any college, as you were saying before. Right. We're, a, we're a unique institution that isn't necessarily a fit for every student. Uh, and it's, so it's through that essay that we often find the kinds of students who really thrive at St. John's, who love our approach to reading great books and talking about them here. And, um, and so that essay has taken kind of preeminent importance for us in the admissions process up until this year and when we've made some changes. Right, right. And I have to say that not having a limit is sort of the kind of thing that keeps me up at night sometimes, but it's when, but it's totally appropriate for you guys. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, not having a maximum, sorry, you have a minimum in which lets students know you, you need to write a fairly extensive essay for us. And if you want to go on and on longer and tell us even more, that's something that we value. And, and I do like that as challenges it can be to help students with that. It might tell some students, oh, this might not be the place for me. But it is kind of interesting at a, a school where you're reading so many books and presumably where writing is a big part of the curriculum, that you've actually introduced an alternative way to apply that takes the emphasis off of the essay. So talk to us a little bit more about the new way to apply and we can kind of get into the why of it all. So we spent this um, this past summer thinking about how our application reflects who we are as an institution. And I think actually we're very happy with our application, our traditional application, and how it reflects who we are in that we ask about these great books. We really put this emphasis on there. We have this word minimum instead of word maximum. These are all things we're proud of that I think right. are reflective of who we are. And yet we looked at our application and we thought, this doesn't capture really everything about the identity of St. John's. Uh, as I mentioned at the start of the program, we read all these books, and so books are a big piece of it. We do a lot of writing, of course. That's a part of what we do. But discussion is one of the main pillars of what St. John's is all about. There are no lectures. Every class is a discussion. And so the discussion we had this summer in the admissions office was how do we make our application reflect that discussion-based nature of what we do. And we came up with this discussion-based application, and not to replace the traditional application, but as a an optional alternative to it for those students who would find it the right fit. And so in the discussion-based application, students still complete a form, but it's a much more abbreviated 
form than what the common application or any other application uses. It's very brief. Um, we estimate generally students will take five to 10 minutes to complete the form. Wow. They'll attach to the form two things that we need in order to make our decision. One is the transcript. And so they can attach a transcript to that. Um, they also need to attach a writing sample. So we have a sample of how they write, but something they've already written for high school that's been graded by a teacher, nothing they have to create for the purpose of applying to college. Right. And then beyond that, what they will do when they submit that form is they will find um, instructions on how to sign up for three things that are the, the heart of the discussion-based application. One is an interview with an admissions counselor. The other is a interview with one of our faculty members. Mm -hmm. And the third is participation online in a prospective student seminar where they'll read an excerpt from um, a great book and, um, and talk about it with a group of other prospective students and one of our faculty members. Wow. And the assessment of the application is really based on those three things as opposed to um, what we do in the traditional application relying on essays and also recommendations. Right. Okay. So, I mean, that's super exciting and interesting and I can you know, hearing you talk about it, obviously it makes total sense that this could be a great way to select future students because, as you say, the whole premise of the university is you or the college is you read these books and then you discuss them in class. And so here you have an opportunity to do exactly that and see them in action. And when I think about the things that families find frustrating about the college application process, whether it's students feel this way or parents feel this way, it's often that well, they don't really get to know me or they're not really getting to know my student and all the wonderful things they can bring to the table. And of course, you can't know everything about a student through this new way to apply, but you are getting a really excellent picture of how they think on the fly, how they engage with groups, um, certainly how they engage with faculty, how they talk to you. It sounds really exciting and um, like something that would be nice to see, uh, you know, put into place in other schools, although I can't imagine it's it's got to be pretty resource heavy for you guys. And yeah. It, it is resource heavy. I mean, we are a small college and that's part of what makes this possible for us. We have our admission staff who can work one-on-one -on -one with students. We have faculty who are excited to work one-on-one -on -one with students, but it requires that kind of institutional buy-in to this very personalized admissions process. And not every place might have those resources. Um, not every place would place the same value on discussion. I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, the reason this as an idea that works for St. John's, I think primarily is because it fits our institutional identity. It's about what we do. And, and that might be a great fit for some other place, but it might not be a fit at all for, for places that might be exploring other ways of adapting their application for the future. Right. And so this is the first year you've introduced this option. Um, what's the sense so far? Are students taking advantage of it? Or are you still seeing more of the traditional application? How's it going so far? Yeah. So we launched this in August and we got a great reaction. And so um, and so and we continue to get that great reaction, both from students that we talk to who are excited for this. Mm -hmm. They think it might be a better way for them to express themselves in the admissions process. Also, counselors I talk to when I'm on the road visiting high schools, for example, I get a lot of um, 
eager um, questions from counselors about how all this works, how it could be a fit, where those challenges might lie. Um, and, um, and so, so far, we've been really excited with how it's gone and it's still early. And so I can't give you the, the full assessment of it sure. quite yet. But we have about 100 students who have opted so far to apply using this application. Uh, and we have a small application pool at St. John's. This past year, we had about 1,500 applications at the end of our cycle. So 100 at this very early juncture feels like quite a lot. It yeah. feels like it's caught a little bit of a fire among some among some population of our students. And and yet, like I said earlier, there are um, there are students for whom this sounds like a great fit. I talk to students who think this is exactly what, I'm, what I want to do. It's the right fit for me. I talk to other students who say that sounds really interesting, but that's not what I want to do at all. I much <laughs> prefer to put my thoughts in writing, to have time to think things through, to, to edit. And that's okay. We, we are assessing these two applications in identical ways. We're looking for the same types of things that real fit for St. John's in our community. And sometimes that's expressed in writing and sometimes that's expressed in conversation. And so, um, and so I really encourage students to think about these things as being equal, um, just a, they should choose the one that, that can allow them to express themselves in the best way. Yeah. And, and, and I can see that sort of, there are going to be students who are going to be super comfortable in that discussion-based um, evaluation part of the process. And yeah, all right, I'm going to go into this group of students and feel comfortable expressing my opinion and engaging, even though I've not met anyone. And even though what I'm saying is being actually evaluated, not for a grade, but for whether or not I get into college and other students who would say, hold up, that I can do that once I'm there, but it's too much pressure for me. Um, you know, I could see both, you know, and there are students who are excellent writers and for them, that's an easy thing. And for other students, it's a little bit more of a slog, but they're super comfortable on the fly. So I, again, love it. I think it's so exciting. And I agree that it isn't going to be the right thing for many schools, probably most schools, but I'm, I'm looking to this to see if you guys have success with it, will we see some other institutions there isn't anything that's really similar to you guys out there, but schools with a similar style, with more discussion-based, smaller applicant pools, smaller campus, you know, sort of uh, uh, population, you know, maybe they'll adopt something like this. And I, so I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I won't be surprised to see other colleges wanting to innovate in the application space. If you think about it, applications tend to not be very different from each other. And, right. um, and yet... These institutions are often very different from each other. And so, um, so I think there's a room to explore here. And, and that is how we started with this project, thinking about ourselves and our identity and how we express that through the application. But I think we've also discovered all these other benefits to this as well. At least I'm, I'm hoping we discover those benefits as we see how this works going forward. But for example, um, I... I'm excited to really have a much more dynamic interaction with students through the application process than they do with our traditional application. Yeah. For most most students, they, they fill out a form, they write their essays, they submit it into a black box, and they just wait to hear a response. With our discussion-based application, students are actually back and forth with us, having conversations with a faculty member, having conversations with um, each other, having a conversation with the admissions counselor. And so there's a much more dynamic relationship that I think can make the whole process um, feel better, feel more substantive yes. and interesting, and then also hopefully actually convince the students, we admit, um, through this process that this is the kind of community they want to join too. Yeah, and, and it, it it highlights a key component of the process, which I believe gets very frequently lost, which is colleges are looking to engage with applicants as much as applicants are looking to engage with colleges. And especially with a smaller school 
where you're a smaller community, um, you want to show them all the wonderful things that you have. And how do you do that with a paper application? And this sounds like a brilliant way to, like you said, you're in going back and forth with them. You become hopefully a little less scary to the students, but also much more real. Um, the only downside I could see is that when, if a student doesn't get accepted is, wow, that feels a little more personal because they really got to know me and they didn't want me. But I don't know that it feels less personal when students get a denial from uh, a, a school with whom they have zero communication beyond pressing send on an application. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably true. I mean, that's, that's a tough part of what we do is having yeah. to say no sometimes. Although I do think this these more personal interactions really help students express themselves better. And in some ways, I wonder if that doesn't help us um, help us get to say yes, which is what we really yes. want to say. Yes, we want to bring you into our community. Yes, we want to be a part of of this project we're doing together with these great books. And and this is something that we've actually seen in our admissions process in the traditional one in the past few years that we've always had the option. Um, for a student to sign up for an interview. And um, and sometimes what we've seen is students come into those traditional interviews and um, and really that's where they shine. They are, they're showing yes. us who they are. We As we get to ask them questions and dig a little bit deeper, all of a sudden we uncover this great fit for St. John's that maybe it wasn't as evident on the surface of their application. And I think that's particularly can be true of students who may be um, underrepresented in um, most colleges around the country, students mm -hmm. who didn't have parents themselves who went to college, um, that, that the application form, the essay, the, this whole system we often make students go through um, is often unfamiliar to some students. And right. an actual conversation can feel much more familiar and can find, it can be a place where the student can express themselves in a much more real way. And so it, in that way, it actually helps them, I think, elevate some students, um, particularly those who are underrepresented, um, to show that we're able to say yes. And that's actually, in the end, what I want to do. I, find, I want to find those students who are such a great fit for St. John's. Yeah, I mean, and anytime you can go beyond just numbers on a page, it's a win. And um, and and yeah, get beyond that. Oh, well, this is an essay. I've gone to a school where we write lots of essays and the teachers really work with us on how to perfect those essays versus I've gone to a school that's we don't do a lot of writing. And so, man, the essay is not going to be a strength of mine and you won't really get to know what my strengths are until we talk. So it's it's. It's very exciting for many different reasons and in many different ways. Um, last thing is, where can students go to find more about this information and what's your deadline? So if this is sparking any interest in someone who's who's listening, you know, where do they go to, to get started? You can go straight to our website, which is sjc.edu. We have information right on the homepage about applying either with the traditional application or with the discussion-based application. And, um, and But what I would encourage you, and this is the nature of the discussion-based application, is to, yes, check out the website, yes, read the information you have there, but then reach out to us. And, yep. um, and we have contact information on our website for all of our admissions counselors. You're also welcome to reach me directly. I'm easy to find. I'm at Benjamin.baum, B-A-U-M, at sjc.eu. And that is part of the nature of St. John's. We like to have these personal conversations with prospective students, with parents. And so you should feel free to reach out to us if you're listening and thinking this sounds like an intriguing fit for, for me or for my students. Awesome. Ben, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We come back. We're going to be answering your questions. So don't go away. Follow 
follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I promised you we were going to get to your questions, and we're going to do that. So I'm excited because uh, I don't get to do these anymore. I don't know. They, everybody else likes doing the listener questions, and um, they're not letting me do them anymore. So I'm, I traded into today's hosting sir, and got, got my hands back on the listener Q&A. Um, and I'm really excited to welcome my colleague and former financial aid officer at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine, Michelle Smoley. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Beth. All right. Uh, I'm excited because we have listener questions and you and I have answers. Um, so I'm going to dive right in here. I think I'm going to dive right in here. For some reason, I seem to be... There we go. Couldn't get to my questions. Um, I'm going to start with one for you. And this one was submitted to us um, via YouTube. For those who aren't aware, you can watch all of our podcasts on our YouTube channel. Um, So we're here recording not only our audio, but also the video. So if you want to watch us, you can do that on on YouTube. Um, And so we did have someone ask a question, and here it is. Uh, I'm the beneficiary of an irrevocable trust. Do I need to report that under assets? Also, my kid is a beneficiary of my own living trust. Do I need to report that? Good questions. Very good questions. We have some really smart listeners, I think, that ask very good questions. Um, The trust question um, is like this one, twofold. And the first thing that people want to look at is whether or not it's a irrevocable trust or a revocable trust. So in the case of the first question, where the listener stated that she was listed as the beneficiary for an irrevocable trust, she would need to report that as an asset on both the FAFSA and the CSS profile um, or any uh, college 
financial aid applications. They're going to want to know that. Um, an irrevocable trust, just like the name, can't be revoked. And so it's pretty much set in stone that the beneficiary is the owner of those assets. Um, and sometimes we run into where families may have partial ownership. Um, you know, maybe it's a, a family trust with, with three siblings as the beneficiary. The parent would only report their portion mm -hmm. of irrevocable trust. Got it. Okay. So that makes sense. And then what yeah. about the second part of the question, which is that the child is the beneficiary of a living trust? Right. Right. Um, so this is going to work a little bit differently because typically living trusts are revocable and they're usually payable on, you know, death to the beneficiary from the owner of the asset. So to answer this listener's question, uh, she would, he or she, they would report this as their own asset. Mm -hmm. uh, and the student would not report this as a student-owned asset. And honestly, that's really a good thing because uh, student-owned assets are assessed and looked at more heavily in the financial aid need analysis with the assumption that students have less bills to pay and if they own more assets, they can allocate more of those assets to pay for their education. Right, right. So it makes sense. So, all right. So in both cases, the parent is reporting these two things as assets. And in the second one, the student is not reporting it as an asset, um, which okay. makes sense. All right. I think you have a question for me. I do. And this one came in from a mother on Facebook. And she asked, can you comment on optional letters of recommendation? And do you need to send in any of these? Um, okay, great question. Um, so let's talk about letters of recommendation. Some schools require none. Some will require two, one from a teacher, one from a school counselor. Some will require three, a school counselor letter, and then two, two teacher recommendations. Um, in most cases, unless a school outright states that they don't accept letters of recommendation, um, which indicates that they don't read letters of recommendation, um, a school will offer the opportunity if you have another letter that you want to send in, you know, that's fine. I would say that um, if a student is, ha is, geez, I've talked about this so much that I'm like getting lost in all the little nuances that I want to share. Okay. If your teacher, if you've got two teachers that are giving you great letters of recommendation and your counselor is doing a great job with that, um, that's really all the school needs. What they ask for is what they need. So in the case of anything extra, you really want to be thoughtful. I always say that this is a process where it's very difficult to believe, but less is actually more. Um, as an admissions officer, you are reading many files a day. You might read 100 files a day. When I was reading at Penn, I read 30 files a day. Um, the maximum amount of time I was spending with every application was 15 minutes which seems like a lot of time, or maybe seems like no time at all. I don't know. It depends on your perspective. But if you keep in mind that I was looking at a transcript, I was looking at a list of activities. At the time, I was reading um, 
two essays. Uh, so, um, you know, we had the main application essay and then a pen supplemental essay and actually a couple of short answers. I was reading two teacher recommendations, a counselor letter of recommendation. There was a lot in there for me to review in those 15 minutes. So if a student was going to submit something extra, it really needed to add something new to the application that I hadn't already seen. And it needed to add something, you know, it really... It should be something that's that is going to add and that's worth my time to read. And so, if I had a file um, at the time I was reading paper files, an average file was about a quarter of an inch thick. If you pick up the pile, you know you're on application. I'm reading thirty in a day. I'm on application twenty. Um, I only have an hour before I have to pick my child up at um, daycare, and then when I come back, I've got to make dinner. We're going to eat dinner, and then later in the evening, I'm going to have to go back and read the files I didn't get to. If your application is twice the size of the rest of the pile, I can assure you that my overwhelming sense is not of excitement before I flip open the cover of that, right? I am like, what is so important that this file is so much bigger than all of the other files? So I tell that as a cautionary tale when you think about submitting really anything extra. Um, now, if your student has a part-time job, if they are uh, playing on a sports team and have played for the same coach for a long time and the student has a really great relationship with the coach and the coach can talk about something other than their athletic ability because if they're really that talented and they're being recruited, that's not something I need to read about in a letter of recommendation. But maybe this is a student who makes every team he or she's ever been a part of better by merely just the way that they interact with their teammates. Um, you know, maybe this is something you're really involved in your church. Anything where maybe you're involved in something that your school knows less about than your counselor knows not that much about or your teachers don't know anything about it. And it's going to add a little bit more insight to who you are as a student and what you're going to bring to the table. I think that's a good example of when an optional recommendation makes sense. If it's just, well, they said I could submit one, so I need to find someone to write it, don't do it. If you are tempted to send in five, really don't do it because um, my, I would sort of read maybe if the students send a couple additional pieces or recommendations, I might read one additional recommendation letter and it was whatever order it was in in the file. So it could have been the most useless of the bunch, but that was the one I read and then I was moving on, right? So you have to make sure that it counts if you're going to go with something optional. And my personal advice is I would keep it to one additional optional letter of recommendation. Um, I can't really think of a time where more than one was additive and or necessary. What you can do if a student has lots of things they're involved in and lots of people who might be good letters uh, letter writers is you can ask them, do you mind just doing up a paragraph and sending it to my school counselor? And then the school counselor could always include that in their letter of support. So many counselors out there would be more than happy to get additional insight that they could include in a letter. So that's a way where you could get some great additional information into the letter without clogging up the file with a lot of extra pieces. So bottom line, not necessary. Keep it to one. Less is more. <laughs> Less is more. Exactly. That's good. That's, that's what I meant. Uh, all right, Michelle, I've got another one for you. 
This one was submitted okay. to us on Instagram. Um, you could follow us on Instagram. You could follow us on Facebook because we're there. All right. Going to do FAFSA for the first time. What counts and what doesn't in terms of 504 plan, retirement money, and employee prepaid benefits? Um, do the FAFSA-only schools count these things? And FAFSA-only being schools that don't require the CSS profile. Um, will they still count siblings in college even if the new FAFSA doesn't? Lots of questions here for you. Yes. Okay, let's take them one at a time. So what counts and what doesn't count? And I'm going to assume that this listener, when they talked about the 504 plan, they probably meant 529 plan. Because the 529 plan is the tax advantage saving for college plan, where a 504 plan is an academic plan. So I'm going to go off of, of that assumption. And when a family is filling out the FAFSA, uh, and I bet we get this question thousands of times each year, and actually the new FAFSA that has yet to be released for the upcoming academic year for 24-25, this has changed. So if there are any listeners out there who have filled out the FAFSA before, listen intently because with the new FAFSA, Parents only need to report the balance of the 529 plan for the specific student that they're filling out the FAFSA for. So this is different because in the past, the FAFSA wanted all of the family or parental-owned 529 plan balances reported because it's very easy to change the beneficiary to a 529 plan. So that is a, a change. So if this listener has a 529 plan and for the student that they're filling out the FAFSA for, then yes, you would need to report that and you would report it as a parent asset, even though the student is listed as the beneficiary. So um, retirement money, another question we get a lot and a lot of families get anxious about what assets they have to report on on the FAFSA. Uh, good news is we still don't need to report retirement assets on the new FAFSA. So if you have 401ks, 403bs, Roth IRAs, IRAs, you do not report those on the FAFSA. Um, and for schools that only use the FAFSA, they're not going to require or know what types of retirement accounts you have or what balances are in those accounts because you don't need to report them. Right. Uh, employee prepaid benefits. So this, an example of this um, is like a flexible spending account, an FSA, if you will. Um, those do not need to be, re be reported on the new FAFSA. So, um, and health savings accounts don't need to be reported either. Um, and because that's a question we get a lot. Um, sometimes there's confusion between the FSA, the flexible spending, which is prepaid, and the, the health um, savings account. But neither one of those need to be um, reported on, on the FAFSA. So, okay. so that's we covered the Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I think it's good news for, for families. Um, now, maybe some bad news on the second que uh, question is in regards to 
do they, meaning I'm assuming schools, um, are they still going to count siblings um, even if the new FAFSA doesn't uh, now count this? So a couple of comments regarding this. The old FAFSA asked about the number in the household and it also asked the number in the household excluding parents that are attending college greater than half time. The new FAFSA is still going to ask those questions, which might confuse families because the buzz right now and, and uh, kind of the, the news that is making some families anxious is the new FAFSA is no longer going to take multiple siblings or multiple children in college as part of their student aid index calculation. Right. So in the past, when the EFC um, expected family contribution, um, which is now known as the student aid index, was calculated if it was 50,000 for a family that had one in college, if that same family had two in college, it would be divided by two. So then the EFC would have been 25,000 for each student. Right. Um, that aspect of the calculation is, is going away. So I think a couple things to keep in mind here for families, if they have multiple children in college, one is to remember the FAFSA predominantly looks for any need-based federal student aid eligibility. And right. quite honestly, there's not a lot out there. So, um, you know, that's one thing to keep in mind. Now, we do have some schools that use the FAFSA for their own institutional uh, need-based. Um, we have asked some schools, what are you going to do about this? Are you going to change your methodology and how you look at it, even though the FAFSA is changing? So we've heard from some schools that have said, if for the current students, that schools may look at that as a special circumstance and may grandfather those students in and make adjustments because those current students, their student aid index or EFC was calculated based on having multiple in college. Right. So that is one thing that we have heard from some schools. Um, for other schools that are, again, just using the FAFSA, if you're a family that's going to have multiple in school, I would encourage them to reach out to the financial aid office and ask for a special circumstance or state um, your family situation and see if they um, will make an adjustment or not for their own institutional aid. They won't be able to make an adjustment for federal right. uh, need-based financial aid, but the schools may look at that as a special circumstance and a situation where they may uh, include that when awarding their own institutional need-based aid. Right, right. And I, I think we are, uh, it's still too early to say, right, but it does seem like there are some schools who might be like, hey, we understand this is how the FAFSA is going to do it, but we are going to still do it the way that, that we have been doing it in the past. And to your point, with our institutional aid, 
because right. what happens with the federal aid is what happens with the federal aid and they can't control that piece. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break. It's excellent timing. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we have more questions, both admissions and finance. So don't go away. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com experts to learn more. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back and we are back with more of your questions. And Michelle, I think you have a question for me. I do. And this one was submitted uh, via Instagram. And uh, they are looking for a suggestion or suggestions for upper class white students answering the mandatory short answer diversity question. Sure. Um, So diversity question, um, I mean, it can be asked in many different ways, but uh, this is in some cases a new question, not always, but in some cases a new question that colleges have added to their applications since the um, Supreme Court ruling that struck down the use of race um, and ethnicity in admissions considerations. And so I think what I would say, just to back up slightly, is that um, that ruling is a challenging one for many colleges, who most of whom have a goal of admitting a diverse group of students so that their campuses are places of learning and not echo chambers. Um, I think that one of the challenges of tying, you know, they are linked, the SCOTUS ruling and these, and some of these new questions that have been introduced, but it does kind of paint a very narrow picture of diversity, which is basically that it's about racial or ethnic background. But diversity comes in many different forms. Um, And it can be socioeconomic status, it can be geographic status, uh, it can be any kind of 
there are so many different ways in which you and I are different from each other, um, in which we are different from all of our colleagues, in which I am different from my neighbors, um, right? So every person is unique and diverse in their own ways. And so what I would say is that colleges are, uh, you know, looking to see how are you engaging with people who are different from who you are? And what would you highlight as some of the things that are a little bit more unique about you? And, um, you know, the the question sort of specifically referenced upper class white students, which I suppose implies that they don't have diversity, but I would argue that they, you know, they have their own experiences in life and their own backgrounds. And there are a lot of different things that I think students could talk about. So they could look at what are the different places where I fit in and, you know, what might I highlight about those? Um, I, I, I think it's a difficult thing to talk about and to offer suggestions for um, without knowing more about the student. So what I would I think the best thing is that a colleague of mine wrote a really excellent blog about this. Um, and there are some resources linked in the blog, but there's also just a really thoughtful um, suggestions about how to think about this question and respond to it on your own. So the title of the blog is Sharing Your Identity in College Essays. And if you want to find it, you could go to our blog, blog.getintocollege, all one word. So blog.getintocollege.com um, and forward slash sharing your identity in college essays, or just go to the blog, blog.getintocollege.com and search for sharing your identity in college essays. It will pop that blog right up. Um, there are a lot of good ideas in there, tips, as I mentioned, they're, they're even linked to um, a resource you can use to think a little bit more about your own background. And, um, and that's really where I would um, suggest that you start out for that one. Great. All right, Michelle, I've got another question for you. All right. All right, here we go. I, um, this is, I think, one for, um, well, the writer may not be aware that the, actually the FAFSA isn't yet available, but um, they're saying they didn't complete the FAFSA for my daughter because I didn't think I'd qualify for financial aid. Um, I just attended a financial aid Zoom meeting that the high school put on, though, and they said everyone should complete a FAFSA. Can we still do it now? Yes. <laughs> yeah. All of my college, my daughter's college applications are in, and we've already received decisions from a couple of them. That's exciting. Um, Michelle, what say you? Okay, so I'd say that there's a couple components to think about here. Um, a lot of times, high school uh, guidance office, admission offices, and we've seen it where even states have now mandated that it's a graduation requirement for seniors to complete the, the FAFSA. And some schools look at that as, as another metric for them, that if they have a 100% or a very high percentage of families that fill out the FAFSA, that they're doing their job. Um, to your point, uh, simply stated, does a family have to fill out the FAFSA? The answer to that is is no. However, there are a lot of reasons to think about why you might want to complete the FAFSA um, for all families. And uh, you had mentioned this in the question, it's never too late. So this listener said they received a, a couple of admission decisions already. That's great. Um, 
you don't have to apply for financial aid or fill out the FAFSA before you get those admission decisions. Um, a lot of times, if schools are asking for that, they are just wanting to provide you the financial aid information in a more timely manner. So uh, you're never it's never too late. Um, some things to think about why to fill out the FAFSA. If you want your student to have access to the federal direct student loan, which has a subsidized component where the government pays the interest um, and an unsubsidized component, um, even though there is a annual borrowing limit for students, um, I talk to families all the time that want their student to have some financial skin in the game. Right. They want them to recognize that this is part of investment in themselves, not just from the parent, but financially for themselves as well. And quite honestly, I have found through the many years I've been in this industry, students do so much better if they have some financial skin in the game. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great learning lesson from a financial wellness and literacy perspective. They learn how to build credit, they learn what principal is, interest, and and get accustomed to the whole debt management credit perspective. Um, right. So that's one reason to um, think about, because you have to complete the FAFSA for that, because that really is the application. Right. Um, another item to think about is there are some schools out there that do require the FAFSA um, in order for the student to be considered for merit. Now, sometimes I feel like we contradict ourselves because we get asked or, you know, is the financial information looked at when determining admissions and awarding merit scholarships? And, you know, normally we say merit scholarships are, are not based on, on financial need, which quite honestly, they're 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 not for for the most part. Right. But I can give families an example uh, on where requiring the FAFSA may be relevant. If we look at the state of California, for example, they have a, a very generous and nice, I would say, state grant scholarship program, and so schools like the UCs or the Cal States, they might require the, the FAFSA um, in order to consider the students for a merit scholarship, just as a double check. Because if that student and family fills out the FAFSA and they qualify for any federal aid that's need-based or a, a state scholarship, that's money from the institution that they can give somebody else. Yeah. So... That is another uh, way to look at why some schools may require the, the FAFSA in awarding merit scholarships. So I always tell families for any school the student is looking at applying to, to check their merit scholarship information, check the financial aid information, look for priority deadlines, and look under the merit scholarships on whether or not the, the FAFSA is required to be considered for, for merit. 
Right. And actually, I think the really important point about the California one that you just made is that they're asking for that information, not so that they can not give you merit aid, but so that they can maximize their ability to give aid to as many students as possible, right? So in your example, they were they're potentially able to give this family some aid in the portion of like federal aid, and then they still might give them the state grant aid, but they have to take less of it, and then they have more, which means they can give it to other students, right? So I do, I know that there is this there can be this animosity, this idea that, well, they're using information against me when often they're trying to use it so that they can maximize the money that they have. So it's it's not using it. Yeah. I mean, again, they are trying to figure out how much you can afford, but if you're not applying for aid and but they're going to award some merit money, that it makes sense they would do it. They're not wielding that information against you, I think is the key. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think a key point for merit is schools are not looking at the FAFSA as um, or the ability or inability to pay yes. for a family when awarding those institutional merit dollars. Right. They're basically using them to try and get as many students to want to come to their school as possible. And yeah, there's lots of different calculations that go into how they do that, um, that we don't have time for today. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. So, right. Got it. Anything else on that front or you have? No. No, I think I I um I think that I covered everything. All right, sounds good. I think we have time for one more, depending on how much I talk. Maybe two, but I okay. think probably just one more. All right, all right. So, uh, is the GPA more or less important than the essays and the activities? Um. Okay. So, great question. Uh. And anyone who has listened to any episodes of this show are going to be very familiar with this phrase, which is, it depends. Yeah. Um, so what I would say is this, there are many, many schools in this country, more than not, probably 79 to 80% of the schools in this country where that are looking primarily at what did you take in high school and how did you do in those classes? Um, and so they're primarily focused on your academic record. And if you're where they want you to be, welcome to the school. And if you're not, well, sorry, we don't have a spot for you, right? Um, that is because about 79 to 80% of the colleges in this country admit more than half of their applicant pools in a given year. So um, they're going to be very predictable and their um, process is primarily focused on how you did in class. The more selective you get, the more applicants are, that will be in those applicant pools who can easily come and do the work, right? They've shown that through their transcripts, through what they've taken and how they've done in the class. And so what you're doing outside of the classroom, um, from the activities that you're involved in to what your letters of recommendation have to say about you to what you have to say about yourself and your essays, your personal presentation, are take on much greater importance. And when you are at the most selective levels, um, the expectation is that you've done spectacular work in the classroom, but that's just... Uh, a, a baseline expectation because 
So many of the students in the applicant pool will have done spectacular work in the classroom. And so what takes a student there from simply being a um, a strong application, a competitive application to a compelling one that gets in are going to be all of those other pieces, the what you do outside of the classroom, um, what you share about yourself in your essays and your personal presentation, um, and what your recommendation writers have to say about you. So, uh, you know, if you don't have the grades then the rest of it is nice, but probably also not going to move the needle. But having the grades on their own is rarely, really never going to be enough at the most selective level because show me 40,000 applicants to Harvard and I will tell you that probably 30,000 and I'm probably being conservative here, 30,000 have done spectacularly well in their courses and their grades. So what, what, how do you get down to the maybe 3,000 acceptances you're going to send out in order to yield your class? And it may not even be 3,000. So, you know, again, the more selective you get, the more important those other pieces are going to be. Um, Michelle, thank you so much. I talked enough. And uh, <laughs> as, as I anticipated, I there's no room for another question. Um, thanks to Michelle and all my guests. Next week, Shannon is here. Um, and she's going to be talking about financial aid for spring transfers, men co- men's colleges, and state department-sponsored pre-college programs. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation. New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit GetIntoCollege.com.